This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about modern monetary theory and the neoclassical economics it's looking to replace. And now look, I will be straight with you. It is impossible to talk about this topic without getting into the weeds, and the weeds of economic theory is not most people's favorite place to be. But I truly think that if you stick with the show, by the end, you'll have learned a lot of very important stuff. And it may help to think about it this way. If you care about passing a Green New Deal, a guaranteed jobs program, a universal basic income, a Medicare for all, or any other progressive priority that costs money, it's very important to understand the logistical and political mechanisms by which money for those policies would be appropriated by Congress. The debate over modern monetary theory, otherwise known as MMT, gets to the core of those issues and seeks to change the paradigm of how we think about government spending, which will make it politically easier to spend money that will improve the lives of all Americans and beyond. So hang in there for this deep dive. You will be smarter on the other end, I promise. Clips today come from Why Is This Happening, Pitchfork Economics, The Ezra Klein Show, The Majority Report, and Planet Money. I have watched my entire adult life in politics. People talk about the deficit as this terrifying thing. The deficit's too high. The debt's too high. And because of that, we cannot do X. And what that always means isn't really, I care about the deficit or the debt. It never means that. It's a lie. It's always a lie. In fact, it's a lie that's so reliable that it's essentially a kind of linguistic substitution. It's just an invocation of an outside authority to say, like, I don't like what you're proposing. So whenever someone, you know, whatever Republican politician you want to choose, Paul Ryan, who was concerned about deficits and debts, Paul Ryan doesn't care about deficits and debts. And you only need to know that. But look at his voting record. Like he voted for the Iraq war. He voted for all the defense appropriations and he voted for Medicare Part D, which was a drug prescription benefit pushed through by the Bush administration unfunded. They just created out of whole cloth a new drug prescription benefit for seniors with no revenue stream. And it passed by one vote in the House. And the deciding vote was Paul freaking Ryan. OK, so then he'll turn around. He'll cast that vote. Then he'll turn around two years later. And the Democrats propose well, we need a, we need a big recovery act or stimulus program because the country's in the worst economic freefall in 70 years. And all of the economists, the macroeconomists tell us that we need demand to stimulate the economy. And Paul Ryan votes against it because, oh, my, no, that blows up the deficit. Literally, that means nothing. And yet people take it seriously. People will write about Paul Ryan like Paul Ryan. He's a deficit hawk. He's a deficit hawk. He worries about the deficit. He doesn't fucking care about the deficit. And that is absolutely evident in his. And that's true of Kevin McCarthy. It's true of Mitch McConnell. It's true of every Republican and conservative out there, because I have watched during my I was born in 1979. And here's what's happened. Ronald Reagan, small government, bad deficits, bad, small government deficit explodes. Military funding explodes and taxes are cut. Bigger deficit. They leave that ultimately through George H.W. Bush, who actually does put his money where his mouth is, infamously votes for a bill that raises taxes to close a deficit. And he is thrown out of the conservative movement and viewed as a traitor evermore. Then Bill Clinton comes in. Oh, now there's a Democratic president. Well, now we really care about deficit and debt. You see, you start to see a little pattern here. We got to deal with the deficit and debt. And Bill Clinton buys it, too, because the bond markets and interest rates and yada, yada. And then... 
they close the budget deficit. They get a surplus. George W. Bush. What do you think George W. Bush does? What do you think the Republicans do when they're in power? Will they explode the deficit and the debt? More military spending? Huge amounts on wars? Huge tax cuts. Basically, same recipe as Reagan. Leave office with the worst financial crisis in 70 years and a exploding deficit in debt. And what do Republicans do the very next day as soon as Republicans are out of power? Oh, God, no, the deficit in debt. We got to deal with it. Because Barack Obama's president, Democrats and president. Okay. They threaten to default on Americans' debt obligations for the first time in the history of the country. They precipitate a huge crisis. They impose austerity that makes people miserable. And then Donald Trump is elected president. And I guess you could complete the pattern here. Oh, wait a second. A huge tax cut for rich people and big increases to military spendings and a bigger deficit? Yes, because that is what the Republican Party stands for, bigger deficits. So when you look at the behavior of people in politics, no one cares about the deficit and debt except for a small group of people. There's some folks, I think some of the advisors to Democrats over the years actually care about it, but generally no one cares about it. They pretend to care about it and everyone pretends to believe that they care about it and scold each other about it like it's a real thing. But it's no one actually acts as if what they're saying they believe. And that's just maddening. So everyone walks around with these face value pronouncements and explanations for their political behavior by citing a thing that they don't actually believe. It's just unbelievable bad faith. And the political conversation revolves around it. The way that we talk about politics, like takes this very seriously. You can drive down a street in New York City and you can see a big debt clock. Right. And this is like one of these like it's one of these non-ideological centrist things. Where, well, the deficit and the debt. So you can because you can like scold both Democrats and Republicans. Well, how are you going to pay for it? I want I want single better. Well, how are you going to pay for it? Oh, see, I'm, I'm very, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of how a government works. But wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So if everyone's behaving as if it doesn't really matter, and we've been running huge deficits and debts in sort of waxing and waning cycles, but always, we always have a deficit, maybe it doesn't actually matter? Like, what if the whole premise is wrong? The first time I read about MMT, I was just taken with the power of the narrative flip. That paradigm flip just, it was a, it's a beautiful story. So to start, if you could just explain to us what modern monetary theory is in as simple a story as, as you can tell us. Okay. Well, I think the, probably the simplest way is to say that Almost everything that we've been taught to believe about money and deficits and debt is probably wrong. And I say that because I think that most people, to the extent that people think about government finance at all, when they hear things like the government is running budget deficits, they kind of recoil and they go, oh, my God, that's terrible, right? A deficit is um, evidence that you're doing something wrong. You're not matching your spending and what you're taking in. Uh, I couldn't do that. Why are you doing that? This is clearly evidence of irresponsible behavior, right? So it's that tendency that I think we have to conflate the government's finances with our own, both because the finances that we're most familiar with are, of course, our own, and because our friendly politicians and pundits and others um, 
continue to repeat that the government is um, drowning in red ink and could face bankruptcy and needs to get its fiscal house in order. So even the the use of the term fiscal house harkens back to that individual household. And so the problems start there. And what MMT does is really just come in and remind people that governments are not like households, that households are merely we call them users of the currency. Um, individual states, municipalities are also using the currency. And the federal government is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. And because it's the issuer, it's the source of the dollar, it can't run out of money. It can't face bills coming due that it can't afford to pay. It can't be pushed into bankruptcy like a, a private business. And so that, I would just say... That's as simple as I can give you as a sort of jumping off point. You had a piece, uh, I think it was last year on the Los Angeles Times, in which you said that, yes, the government could give everybody a pony if we could make enough ponies. <laughs> Explain this difference between the common perception of the order in which money is spent and taxed versus the way it actually is. Right. So the way that we tend to think that things work is that the government needs our money, right? And we always hear people talk about taxpayer money. And to ask the question, if we want, uh, government is talking about doing some new investment in the economy, let's say for infrastructure, the question is, how are they going to pay for it? Where are they going to get the money? And we start with the assumption that the government has to go find the money somewhere. It has to raise the revenue. And we think that that can happen in one of two ways. Either they collect more dollars by taxing us or they borrow dollars from people who have them. So taxing and borrowing are two ways that the government can come up with dollars that it then spends into the economy. So the spending is the last thing that happens. And so what I did in that piece was to say that um, we have the order of operations backwards, that nobody in the economy could pay taxes with dollars or buy government bonds with dollars unless the government had first put the dollars out there. They had to come from somewhere. And so the way that it actually works is that Congress decides it wants to do infrastructure spending. And there's an appropriations process. An authorization is given for the government to go out and spend dollars into the economy. So the spending comes first. And after the government spends the dollars into the economy, then people get paid and they have an income and they pay back some of that in the form of taxes. And to the extent that the government spends more than it uh, collects back in taxes, it's leaving behind some dollars in the economy. And we call that deficit spending. And when the government runs a budget deficit, of course, it does sell bonds. And we call that government borrowing. So now think about what's happening. The government has spent, let's say, $100 into the economy. And it taxes, let's say, 90 of those dollars back out. That means that $10 are left somewhere in the economy for someone to hold. Now, because the government runs a deficit, it comes back and it says, OK, I'm now borrowing. Who wants 10 in U.S. Treasury securities, government bonds? And sure enough, someone in the economy would prefer to hold the interest-bearing U.S. Treasuries as opposed to just holding the cash. And so the borrowing is just a swapping out 
of some of the dollars that the government deposited into the economy by deficit spending for this um, different kind of government money, if you like, that has a little bit of interest attached to it. Exactly. So, Dr. Kelton, one of the things that I think makes this complicated and that I'm struggling with, and I think challenges lots of other people, is that the metaphor that we should use to kind of picture all of this in our heads is not the usual one, right? Like the household metaphor is very simple. It's intuitive. It's mm -hmm. pervasive. Can you suggest another metaphor that people can use to get their heads around how this works? I think it's not right, but let me suggest that in one of my last books, The Guards to Democracy, we suggested the circulation system metaphor. But it, do you mm -hmm. think that, that captures it? Because our argument in that book was that, you know, people talk about government spending as if government spending actually extinguishes the value of the money, right? Yeah. When, when in fact, yeah. they're just moving money through the economy and, you know, the government no more spends money than the, than the, than the body spends blood when it circulates it. Yeah. But, have you thought about the metaphors that may Yeah, work? I have. I think that the one that you're using, the, the, the idea of a circular flow, kind of works if, if we're talking about just within the, the economy, the private sector of the economy. I, I think that the problem is, for me, if we start talking about a circular flow and government spending and taxes, then I get worried that what happens is people believe that the money the government collects in taxes comes back around to government and then funds new spending. And that's not what we want people to think. What, what I would suggest uh, instead, I guess, is to picture uh, a bathroom sink or a bathtub and to think of the government spending, think of a vertical um, line rather than a circle. So from the very top, the government is spending money into the economy. So maybe that's the water coming from the faucet into the sink. And now the the economy is being flooded with some some dollars that were spent into yep. it. But at the same time, the government is taxing some of that out. And so that's the drain. So that's just shooting straight down. And it's it's just gone. It's it doesn't go back to government and fund the next round of spending. It's more like I don't like the metaphor printing money, but if I'm going to use it, I'll say that spending is like hitting the print key on the keyboard and taxing is like hitting the delete key. It's just removing some of the money that the government spent into the economy. So I think, yeah, a vertical line works better. So, when, so you would say that the, the government <clears throat> spends money into existence and taxes it out of existence. Very nice. Perfect. Interesting. Better than I said it. Okay. And when it borrows money, what is it doing? Swapping one form of government money for another. For this topic, because it's so dense and, and I can't, I couldn't get every bit of information that you need, every bit of context uh, sort of shoehorned into the show. Every once in a while, I'm going to pop in and give you a little bit of contextual information that's going to help you along. So uh, we just heard Stephanie Kelton using the metaphor of a bathtub. And in the clip coming up, 
you're about to hear the term fiscal space, but she doesn't explain it. So I just wanted to explain it ahead of time so you know what we're talking about. So if you got the metaphor about the bathtub, government spending is the faucet, government taxation is the drain, and the money in the middle is the money that's circulating around in our economy, fiscal space is the amount of room between the top of the water level and the top of the bathtub when it might start to overflow. And in this metaphor, an overflowing bathtub is when we start to kick in inflation. When when the government flows too much money into the economy when there's not room for it, there's not real, actual economic activity that can make use of that money, it just fills up and spills over and it becomes useless, but it causes a big mess. So that's what fiscal space is. Stephanie, I know something that you've been frustrated with sometimes is the view that MMT says nothing ever needs to be paid back and we can just print money endlessly. And one thing going on here when I think about when MMT has come so much into the public debate is that it happened in a period when the economy was well below capacity. It happened in this period when we had this huge recession and a financial crisis and a huge output gap. And so you also had a lot of people quite wrongly, you know, worrying about bond vigilantes and America becoming Greece. But so MMT comes in in this moment when its um, recommendations are to worry a lot less about deficits and, you know, worry a lot less about inflation and just spend the money to get Get output moving again. But, you know, if you imagine four or 10 years from now and things are very different, then maybe you need to be raising taxes to slow down the economy under the MMT prescription. So do you want to talk a little bit about that perception that with MMT, you don't actually have to pay for any of your spending and when it might be wrong? Yeah, sure. So I think you're probably right that interest, uh, there was an uptick in interest around the work that we had done in the aftermath of the financial crisis when there was a great deal of slack in the economy. And I think that Jason and I, we would have been on exactly the same page when it came probably, uh, to the degree to which the government had fiscal space and could embark on new spending, provide additional stimulus without, you know, offsets. I mean, that would have undermined the purpose of the stimulus, in fact. But as we get closer and closer to full employment, the amount of fiscal space you have begins to close in around you. Okay. You have less and less. And then the inflation risk begins to increase. And so what we're really trying to do is not to say governments can spend without limit because they control their own currency and therefore you never need to worry about deficits or debt, but that inflation is the correct uh, risk factor, and that when governments consider new spending programs, in particular large spending programs, as the economy gets closer to full employment, you have to take much more seriously the need for offsets, whether those come in the form of new revenue or whether they come in the form of you know reductions in spending in some other area of the budget. So the thing that comes up here a lot is this view that governments, uh, and particularly representative government, um, it, it's democratically accountable. And what people are going to want is for them to spend a lot. They're not going to take the risk of inflation seriously. And precisely because of that, having the representative part of government be responsible for slowing down the economy by raising taxes or cutting spending is, is a bad idea just from the perspective of political economy, that the government will always be spending beyond the point um, when it should, and that inflation can get out of hand quickly. And then that genie of inflation can can get very hard to put back in the bottle. Yeah. So if right now the way we do it is we pretend that there's a revenue constraint and so we don't pass legislation because of the fear of, let's say, adding to budget deficits. And so we get 
uh, infrastructure crumbling around us. We get, you know, problems that aren't solved that we could be solving. And so we get a more lackluster. We don't invest in R&D. We don't uh, put money in education that we should be putting in education to promote longer run growth. So we get a less dynamic, slower growing economy because of those fears. And I guess the question is, if we replace the revenue constraint with an inflation constraint, does that cause members of Congress to now vote more liberally. And by that, I mean, you know, with less fear about expanding budget deficits because we've removed the perception that uh, there's a revenue constraint that's binding. I don't I don't get that impression. My impression, quite frankly, is that Congress already behaves as if they understand MMT. I mean, you know, there were plenty of people warning. And when it comes to defense spending, everybody in Congress is an MMT or virtually all of them. Uh, when we came to the tax cuts, I mean, you know, most economists in 2017 were warning uh, against the passage, at least, you know, uh, those of us, you know, many on the left were warning that the U.S. couldn't afford deficit increasing tax cuts, that deficits matter again, that this was going to lead if we passed these, now we know, close to $2 trillion in tax cuts, that this was going to have all of the usual negative effects because we're no longer in a liquidity trap and we're close to full employment. And if we push forward with an increase in deficit spending of this magnitude, this close to full employment, then we run the risks of all of the negative things happening. And of course, Congress did it anyway. So, uh, and, and I might add, we're waiting to find the negative effects of all of that additional deficit spending. They just didn't happen. But I I guess I just don't believe that Congress restrains itself because uh, it, it fears anything and that inflation and inflation constraint would change that. So now just a little bit more context for you. In the next clip, there's going to be a very brief mention of the fact that the Republican Party at the federal level in the Senate has passed a resolution condemning modern monetary theory. And we just need to clarify, that's not a joke. That's a thing that actually happened. The Republican Party addressed this issue, brought it up in the Senate, and specifically passed a resolution saying, that's bad. So uh, in, in the context of the conversation, this is, this is brought up, and, uh, and Stephanie Kelton, the economist we've been hearing from a lot, didn't even know that that had happened. She learned about it during the interview. But for a little more context, I just wanted to let you know, you know, I did a quick search, and it turns out that Forbes magazine, of all places, wrote this up just a month ago in the beginning of May, and the article is titled, The Senate Resolution to Condemn MMT, Here Are Some Better Candidates for Condemnation. And then the author goes on to lay out a bunch of other bunk economic theories that Republicans generally very much believe in that are, are more deserving of condemnation. But I just wanted to read like the first couple of paragraphs of this article. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of fun. So, quoting... I can hardly believe that I'm typing this. A resolution has been forwarded in the Senate to condemn an economic theory. And then quoting the resolution, recognizing the duty of the Senate to condemn modern monetary theory and recognizing that the implementation of modern monetary theory would lead to higher deficits and higher inflation, unquote. Continuing the article, 
I guess on the one hand that we should be happy that anyone is even aware of post-Keynesian economic theory. Scholars in this area have toiled largely in vain for going on a century, marking Keynes' general theory in 1936 as the starting point, so maybe there's no such thing as bad publicity? But to suggest that MMT is anything radical or dangerous, especially to the point of requiring an official Senate condemnation, is just plain bizarre." End quote. So there's one way in which I think it has to be right, which is that the United States has existed for, you know, 200 plus years. And in the modern era, particularly, it's been a deficit. Almost know. my entire lifetime. Yeah. I mean, uh, right. almost no exception. Right. Very few. Um, okay. So the reason that there is a resolution condemning your this theory by Republicans is that it would seem to say, you know, there's the very famous idea behind Milton Friedman that there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And that fundamental, very fundamental to modern economic theory, particularly the Chicago School, but I think generally is economics is about constraint, dealing with that constraint, the natural constraint, and that you can't just make something out of nothing, essentially. Yeah. And this sounds like you're saying you can. Are you saying you can? No, no, no. Emphatically, no. So it's so funny because in we I keep going back to a principles of economics textbook, you know, chapter one, page one. Students are introduced to this idea that there is a constraint. Right. And it's, the fir- it's literally the first it's concept, literally the first concept. And you move on to things like opportunity costs and all yep. that. But here's the way that the thing is supposed to work. And they usually give you, a you know, a graph with two axes mm-hmm. and they put guns on one and butter on the other. And it's just meant to basically say your society can produce defense goods or everything else, non-defense stuff. Right. And you can combine your resources any way you want to. You can take all the labor that you have, the factories, the machines, the technology, the raw materials, put it together in different combinations, and you could have all defense and no butter, all butter and no defense, or some combination Mm -hmm. of the different things, right? And they draw a line, and then they tell you that you're on the curve. And you're on the curve because you're using all of your resources fully, fully utilizing all the people, all the factories and machines, all the robot, everything is fully employed. Yeah. Just now, AR-15s and Land O'Lakes. That's yeah, all we got in if, our society. If that's the case, if your economy reaches that binding constraint where all of the real resources are being utilized, then the only way to get more of one thing is to give up something else, right? And that's true. The problem is that our economy and virtually all economies chronically operate below that curve. Right. And so so we have available resources that are lying idle. They're sitting around. Nobody wants them. This is the key conceptual thing here, right? Which is that the the constraints are real as opposed to fiscal. Exactly. And 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 what we mean by that is real, like you can't just like, the government can't create a bunch of value by just creating a lot of money if nothing gets built with it. Right. Like you need like, you need factories, you need roads, you need the things that actually create genuine value economic activity. But the constraint on all this is how much real capacity there is, exactly. not the ledger in the Fed. Exactly. That's that's the fundamental idea. Exactly. MMT is trying to replace a perceived revenue constraint, tax dollars, mm-hmm. right, financing with an inflation constraint, with a real constraint that says if you try to push things too far 
and you try to you know go after resources that somebody else is already using, you're going to bid up prices. You're going to create dislocations and problems in the economy. You're going to create an inflation problem, essentially. But if you have space, if you have unused capacity, and you can bring that capacity online, and the government can do that by offering to employ people, by giving contracts, by building infrastructure, whatever the case is, clear those checks, hire those resources, and push the economy to its full potential. Let me ask you to describe a theory that you feel your framework would recommend that the other person in their framework would would disagree with. So, you know, to describe a, a hypothetical thing that could happen where Stephanie MMT would have you go one way and, and maybe Jason's view of the world would have him go the other or Jason vice versa for you. Could we try that? And, and, and Stephanie, beginning with you? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that, you know, I think that Jason is more concerned with the ratio of public debt to GDP and that he thinks of it as a, a proper target of policy. And so what, what I've read of him, uh, recently as early as, you know, as recently as just last year is an argument that government ought to begin to turn, or even in January of this year, uh, turn its attention to beginning to reduce budget deficits modestly and, and slowly over time, but with the aim of targeting a, a debt-to-GDP ratio where there's a belief that it's on an unsustainable trajectory now. And so we've got to do something to bend that ratio down. Um, and so I, I guess I would say the negative consequences from my position uh, of, of making the debt to GDP ratio a target of policy is that you will necessarily end up with slower growing economy, more austerity built in than the economy may need through that period of time, because the ratio is is not a proper target of macroeconomic policy. Okay, so before going to Jason's response on that, I just want to make sure I understand it. So so the idea is that debt to GDP is basically just an irrelevancy. We we shouldn't be following it at all because it doesn't measure anything we care that much about measuring. Um we care about inflation, so we should measure inflation directly or maybe we care about interest rates and and, and do that directly. But to measure debt to GDP is just a conceptual mistake. It orients us towards being worried about the wrong thing, which can in 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 turn make us do the wrong thing. So we should just be worried not about downstream um, effects, but just the, the the indicators that are directly measuring the qualities of the economy we're concerned with. Yeah, I mean, I think that if there was a long-term debt problem, then the way that you would know that is that there would be a long-term inflation problem. You would have some credible long-term inflation forecast coming from the Fed or from TIPS or wherever you would see this thing. Uh, there would be evidence that there, there is a perception that long-term inflation, is, there is a heightened risk of inflation, and you just don't see it anywhere. And absent that, for me, there is no evidence of a long-term debt problem. Jason, do you feel like that actually conflicts with your position? Um, first of all, I, don't, I still don't understand the inflation point, because if you think that inflation is the problem that would be associated with deficits becoming too large— then I don't know why you wouldn't think in that circumstance the Fed wouldn't raise interest rates. And then 
you're back to um, deficits driving up interest rates. Maybe not now, but you know, if you think the worry is inflation, do you think the Fed is just doing nothing in the face of that inflation, or do you think the Fed is raising interest rates when that inflation comes? Well, no, I'm saying I don't see the inflation risk, and because I don't see the inflation risk, short, medium, or long term. I don't have the calculus that the Fed then... I, no, I get that. But you were saying if in theory you did a 10% of GDP expansion in spending, you said the thing you'd look to is inflation. If the Fed is doing its job, we would never ever see the inflation, no matter how much we did in unpaid for spending or unpaid for tax cuts. We would just see the inflation rate staying relatively low, but we'd see interest rates going up. Now, we're not seeing that either right now, which is why I'm not particularly worried right now. But I don't think you can reduce this just as an economic matter um, to just looking at the inflation rate when the whole point of the Fed is to make sure that that doesn't go up and to raise interest rates if it needs to to prevent that from happening. Okay, but the whole point of MMT is to avoid an acceleration in inflation in the first place. And so I didn't say, uh, let's increase spending by 10% and not offset it and then wait for the Fed to react to the inflation we create. I'm saying MMT's position is the best defense against inflation is a good offense. In other words, you, you tackle inflation in the budgeting process itself, where the goal is, right, to avoid creating the inflationary pressures by putting in the proper offsets when you pass the legislation. But I'm just saying if what you're if you're trying to figure out where we are in our fiscal position and all you're doing is looking at the CPI every month or you're looking at forecasts of inflation and financial markets have forecasts of it, forecasters make forecasts of it. If that's all you're ever looking at, you might not ever see that inflation even if you weren't doing um, what you're supposed to on the fiscal side, just because the Fed, if it was doing its job, would make sure that no matter what you were doing in fiscal policy, it didn't show up as inflation. So I'm not sure that you can just look at that one variable to decide. But but I can, I can, I'm happy to step back to policy and where I think we should go. Let me see if I can just track with the conversation. You guys can tell me where I'm wrong as I describe this. What Stephanie says is that the, the idea MMT would push is, you know, stop tracking debt to GDP because debt isn't the indicator of what we're really worried about. What we're worried about is inflation. Jason, you're saying you can't just track inflation because we have the Federal Reserve keeping inflation under check. So even if debt to GDP gets way out of hand, you're never going to see that inflation because the interest rates are going to go up as the Fed slows down the economy to prevent that inflation from happening. So I guess the question this raises is whether the MMT view, Stephanie, is that actually we just have too much of the Fed in this thing altogether, that what you want is to just allow a little bit more space between what we do on the budget and what might happen in the economy so we can see things more directly and and, and respond to them in, in turn. In part, yeah. I mean, look, there there is so much out there in terms of the research about the Fed's reaction function, the importance or not of um, interest rate movements affecting things like, you know, capital spending, 
um, whether deficits, in fact, lead to higher interest rates. Some of the more recent research that I've seen that's very good on this looks at the um, whether it's from Boreo or uh, Sharp or whomever, um, looks at this and says, look, if you actually um, separate countries that control their own currencies from those that don't, then what you find is that rising deficits and increasing debt-to-GDP ratios over time do tend to be correlated with higher interest rates and slower growth. But in non uh, that's in non-monetary sovereigns, but in sovereign countries, countries with their own sovereign currencies, that is empirically not borne out. So, yes, I think there are all kinds of things when it comes to the Fed, uh, as you said, maybe overreacting, overcorrecting, anticipating inflation problems and, and engaging in a tightening cycle that slows things down that wouldn't have been borne out if the Fed had been more patient. So, I think we we just tend to have uh, much less confidence in the central bank's ability to fine tune the economy with um, you know twenty five basis point adjustments in the overnight rate here and there over time. I mean, I don't certainly don't think the Fed is perfect, but I'm quite happy that we have given them the inflation objective. I think they've done you know a decent job of it. And certainly, in my experience with fiscal policy done by Congress, it is incredibly far from what anyone would want. You know, sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's too little. It's really poorly timed. We were doing a fiscal contraction in the wake of the Great Recession, et cetera. So I personally am quite happy that there's an institution that's insulated from Congress that's focused on employment, focused on inflation. We could litigate the ratio of those two. Were they a little too slow, a little too large, a little too fast, you know, in any given dimension? But I've never seen anything as massive as the errors that you routinely see Congress making um, when they do fiscal policy. To what extent, and and I'm curious as to your perspective on modern monetary theory, because uh, I I think this audience is is fairly familiar with with the concept. We've talked about it a lot. And that is simply that um, a government that controls its own currency uh, cannot go bankrupt and um, has the ability to uh, print money. It doesn't need to tax to spend. Uh, There's other reasons to tax. It, It creates value in a currency. But uh, it doesn't need to tax to spend. I'm curious as to your pr- perspective on modern monetary theory. And if you accept it, um, your perspective on whether or not it can provide in lieu of, of a, uh, a, a, a socialist agenda, I guess, for the government. Well, the first thing is easy. Uh, we have a long history in the United States of acting and I'm a product of the economic uh, teaching system of American universities, of acting as though the single most important issue in economics is the debate over whether there should be more or less uh, governmental intervention into the economy, whether Keynes was a good guy who saved the system or an evil person who uh, corrupted it, etc., etc. And in that debate, once it was... Uh, won in large measure after the 1970s 
by Thatcher, Reagan, and all of that, the uh, rising to prominence of Milton Friedman and all that he represented, uh, in those last 30 to 40 years, we have demonized uh, the government uh, in every way possible. And that meant there couldn't be the kind of rational investigation of the power to print your own currency and all that it implied. Uh, I take my hat off to the modern monetary theorists for having broken that taboo by showing carefully and systematically uh, through a series of important contributions that the government's ability to utilize the power of printing money, of controlling the money supply, goes far beyond what that stale old debate allowed people to explore and to think about. So, yes, I, I have no problem with that. And I, of course, like it in part because it frees the government up to be less hemmed in by the notion of government debt and what that represents that it once was. And so it'll have the funds to do the kinds of support of social change that I'm talking about. I wish the modern monetary theorists would be more engaged in the conversation about what they could use government money for mm. in the way of supporting social transformation, since for me, that's the key issue. But whether or not they do it, we're going to do it, uh, because for us, it's just one more overcome obstacle to the kinds of change at the workplace that we advocate. Interesting. So, uh, modern monetary theory would allow for, uh, acceptance of that would allow for an easy, uh, debate over, you know, how the, the government can fund the, uh, worker purchase of, of, Absolutely. of workers. And the only question then would be, which the modern monetary theorists understand, that you do have to remember the lesson, which is older than capitalism, that there has to be a carefully maintained, balance between the monetary mechanism on the one hand and the production of goods and services on the other right. so that these two things do not get out of whack and produce runaway inflations whose social consequences uh, we have learned all too bitterly uh, can be very destructive. But that will be kept in mind, but the government will not be told, quote unquote, you cannot afford to undertake this or that measure that is good for economic production, good for jobs, or in the case I'm talking about, good for a change in the social structure of production. Uh, because of some limiting of the government's funding ability. And, and just to lay person that up uh, a little bit, uh, in other words, uh, the uh, you, you can't get net inflation. Modern monetary theorists believe you cannot get inflation simply by printing money. But however, if you do uh, charge up the economy and um, and, and and create um, enormous demand, or you have obviously some type of supply shock, uh, you can get inflation there. But that's simply just, you know, Keeping your eyes open, uh, more or less. Uh, True, but it, but but if you are politically sensitive, if you understand the politics of this, you have to be very careful since it's not symmetrical. What, the ability to spend more money on the part of the government is not identical to the reverse of spending less. The political costs and difficulties of the one are not the same as the other. So that, yes, we can say that the government can rein in um, what it does when an inflation is looming or a problem, 
Uh, that's not quite the same thing, or at least it hasn't been in our political practice, uh, to what is at, at stake in spending more money. And I think, therefore, you, you're going to have to be careful. You can't quite sweep under the, t under the rug the problems of a disconnect between money and real goods and services uh, in the way that, uh, on the reverse, the people against monetary uh, modern monetary theory. I think you, you're living inside a straitjacket. You're not in a straitjacket, but you're not in a free form either. Okay, one more bit of context for you. Uh, the following clip uh, includes reference to Arthur Laffer. Many of you will have heard of him. Some of you, I assume, will not. It's an important name. It's an important concept. So new information for some and a review for others. Arthur Laffer was a an economic advisor to Ronald Reagan, and he's most famous for being the one to basically convince Republicans forevermore that cutting taxes can actually bring in more revenue for the government. So the theory is based on uh, the Laffer curve. The curve was literally drawn on a napkin to demonstrate that if you were to tax people at 0%, the government would make no money. And if you were to tax people at 100%, well, then no one would work. Therefore, you would also make zero money as the government. So the curve is that starting at zero on one end, ending at zero on the other, it, there's a big upward bell curve in the middle theorizing that there must be some optimal tax rate where the government brings in the most amount of money. And using this, the Republicans have, have said ever since the 80s, well, if it's theoretically possible to lower taxes from some rate to another rate and go up the bell curve and bring in more money— well, then we're going to assume that whatever the current tax rate is, it's too high and lower it and pretend like we'll bring in more money. They're, they're, they, they like to lower taxes as if we had a 90% tax rate in the hopes that bringing it down would bring in more money. Of course, this has never happened in all of the time they've been experimenting with it over the decades. And so it's well known in progressive circles as a thoroughly debunked concept that the Republicans keep trotting out over and over and over. Most recently, uh, Laffer himself was actually an advisor to the state of Kansas when they decided to lower their tax rates and then allow the economy to boom, except, oh no, it didn't. It crashed into absolute devastation. The state basically went bankrupt and it, it became so bad that a deep red state like Kansas started voting out the Republicans in favor of either fiscally responsible Republicans who wanted to raise their taxes or Democrats who had the same idea. Because Congress has the power of the purse, that's an awesome power. And it can't satisfy every want and desire that we have. We have real resource constraints. So the, the question is, how do you get Congress to prioritize the dispensing of public money and the use of real resources? And how do you do that in a way that best serves the public purpose? Right. And, and we should say that this the story you're telling is not at all a mainstream story, although it has been moving towards the mainstream. 
Janet Yellen has criticized it. Larry Summers has criticized it. Jerome Powell, who's the current Fed chair, has criticized it. Like, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying, like, so that people understand the context of this. Like, it's not like this is a mainstream theory at this point. It is a insurgent theory that I think is making gains. If that's a, is that a fair characterization? I think so. I don't think that much of what we've talked about so far is much of a departure from a lot of stuff they would agree with. Because we've just been talking right. about a lot of operations. I think that. What Jerome Powell did in Senate testimony, he got a question about yeah. MMT, and the it's question become came, the scourge. Yeah, the question came from a Republican senator uh, who said, "There's this idea out there that you can have the government uh, because it creates the currency. You know, do a Green New Deal, and the Fed will pay for it, and we don't have to worry because we print our own money." Now he said to a Fed chair. The Fed will pay. You know what I mean? I think that what happened in that question was that they tied a big ribbon around AOC, Green New Deal, MMT, leaning hard on the Fed, making the Fed do something it doesn't already do. And that's not necessary at all. You don't have to change any current operating procedures in order to take fuller advantage of the fiscal space that we have. So what I'm hearing from you is let's say we pass a Green New Deal and we don't raise taxes at all. We don't like undo the Trump tax cuts. Nothing. No, nothing changes in the tax rate. But we spend a trillion dollars more a year. Huge. I mean, enormous. Right. So the full budget of the government is what? Two trillion. No, it's closer to four and a half. I mean, I'm sorry. The discretionary part of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like discretionary. You know, the stuff that you can actually, you know, appropriate is around two trillion. Right. So we're going to we're going to 50 percent increase in that part of the budget, which is the part that Congress appropriates every year. That's enormous, right? A trillion dollar Green New Deal a year would be World War Two mobilization level increase, although short of World War Two. I know I can see the face you're making. I know World War Two is bigger. I know that. So your point is, as long as there's slack in the real capacity, there's productive investment to do with that. There will not be negative consequences from that. That is your, that is your fundamental contention. There will not be negative inflationary consequences as a result of that. Yeah, in fact, you know, you might be surprised. I, I think you're going to be surprised when I tell you this. There's some new research that just came out this week uh, from a financial analyst who looked at this question of just how much space is there in the economy today if we wanted to do increased spending without offsets, without raising taxes or carving out the money from some other part of the budget, how much more could the government safely spend into the economy today on an annual basis? And he did some pretty pretty rigorous analysis. And his answer was safely, conservatively, between five and six hundred billion. If you were willing to push the potential inflation risk and say, look, if we got to five percent, you know, maybe we would get up to five percent. You could go to close to $1.4 trillion a year. Now, you could say, well, are we willing to risk inflation that might reach 5% annually in order to deal with climate in 11 years that we have left? You know, Some people might happily make that trade-off, but uh, his conservative estimate is that you have uh, between five and $600 billion just okay. s- sitting there, non-inflationary space, waiting to be used. Right. I guess here, let me, let me sort of end on the takeaway, right? So like- there's an there's a very obvious ideological freight to all this because it has to do, you know, first, let me be clear that no one in politics actually cares about deficits and they pretend to. That's an important point. They pretend to for their own purposes. Um, it's, you know, preposterous to say that, you know, this MMT thing, which is all about how deficits are bad, is being signed on to by people that obviously blew up the deficit through the tax cuts. Um, 
But there's an obvious ideological freight to this, right? I mean, you are an advisor to Bernie Sanders. You're, I think it's fair to say, on the political left. Um, that that this theory, to bring it back around to Art Laffer, like this is the liberals and leftists' Art Laffer, right? Because Art Laffer comes in and he says to Republicans who already want to cut taxes, like, great news, guys. I know you want to cut taxes for your own reasons. Here I am with your theoretical justification for why you can cut taxes and deficits won't go up. And it was BS, <laughs> but it's, it was very useful ideologically. And I think the critique against you in a broader sort of political sense and against MMT is that this is just the Laffer curve of the left, which is that people, liberals and Democrats and leftists and all these people want all this public investment for a bunch of reasons. They want to fund the Green New Deal because they think that they genuinely believe in it, right, as a project. And, and there's a sort of ideological vacuum that you're filling that says, like, Go to it. You don't have to worry about raising taxes or anything like that. So I I will say I think that MMT is both more responsible and more sophisticated in its approach to the federal budgeting process than anything we have going on today. And I really, really mean that because what happened with let's use the tax cuts as an example. The um, Republicans come in and they want to do at the time one and a half trillion. That was the number we thought uh, in tax cuts. And you had people saying you can't do that. You had people like Paul Krugman writing a column that, you know, titling it Deficits Matter Again and warning that if you do stimulus of this magnitude when the economy is this close to full employment, all the bets are off. Yep. Right? The old that rules apply. That was his apply. argument. Yeah. The old rules apply. Interest rates are Time to worry up. about deficits again Ex was the column. Exactly. Deficits matter again. And he, he laid it out. He said all these negative things are going to happen. Well, guess what? They didn't happen. And Larry Summers and Jack Lew made the same argument about the tax cuts. They said, if the Republicans do this, we're going to be living on a shoestring for decades to come. We're not going to be able to afford to do anything. Well, guess what? We can still afford to do more. And MMT is about saying how much space remains in the economy in spite of the fact that we did some fiscal stimulus with the tax cuts. And the good news is that because the tax cuts were so badly structured, because the windfall went overwhelmingly to people who were never going to turn around and spend that money into the economy, all that space is still there. So people look at what's happened to the deficit because the number's gotten so big, now almost $2 trillion over 10 years, and they say, oh, we used up all the space. And I look at it and say, no, 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 there's still space because of the way that they hmm. did the fiscal stimulus, right? They didn't use Meaning up there's still space real, out in the real the economy real for productive economy. investment. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so what we would like to see, what I would like to see is Congress evaluate um, proposed spending, not based on whether it adds to the deficit over time, but whether it carries heightened inflation risk and whether they've dealt sufficiently with the offsets before moving forward with a vote. So instead of going to the Congressional Budget Office saying, we've got this legislation, we want to do $2 trillion of infrastructure investment, tell us, can we do it? And the Congressional Budget Office is you know, the scoring agency, they're there to basically give a permission slip to Congress. Yep. Yes, you can do this green light or no, you can't. It adds too much to the deficit. And what I would prefer is to use agencies to say, evaluate this legislation. We want to put two trillion in over four years. We've structured these offsets. We're going to offset half of it. Let's say we got taxes or other spending cuts. Tell us, is that going to be an OK thing to do? And then get get feedback that's useful, not just tell me whether it will add to the deficit. That's like the least useful hmm. piece of information you could get back.
theory, I believe, has holes in it. This is Tom Pally. He's an economist. He's done work for labor unions. And he's on the left of the economics profession, like MMT. But he's been a longtime critic. Trouble in the family. And we might as well say here, the reason we're only hearing from economists on the left in this episode is that the economists who are researching and writing about this theory... They mostly all tend to be on the left. Economists who take a more traditional or conservative view, they tend to say, you have to think about taxes as a way to finance spending. That is the responsible way to run a government. To Tom Pally, modern monetary theory is useful because it points out some flaws in mainstream economics. Like, he thinks that mainstream economics is too obsessed with balanced budgets. But he has some doubts about MMT. A big one is the whole taxes thing, the idea of using taxes to fight inflation. Politics doesn't work like that. Taxes are very, very contested. No one wants their taxes raised. It's very hard for politicians to raise taxes. They're very slow to do it because, guess what, they don't get reelected if they do. He says it's just not realistic for the government to react fast enough to respond to inflation. We put that to Stephanie Kelton. If your concern is that it would be difficult to fight inflation by raising taxes, that is obviously a legitimate concern. Um, that it is difficult to get Congress to act quickly to do the right thing. And so one of the things that MMT uh, economists have advocated for a very long time is finding a way to take the fingerprints of Congress off of the decision-making. In other words, to make it happen automatically. She says something like this kind of happens already. Like, when the economy is booming, you don't have to spend as much on unemployment insurance. People have jobs. So spending goes down automatically. She says do more of that. More types of taxing and spending that kick in automatically if inflation starts to tick up. And also, she says, and she's not alone in saying this, nobody has a good model of inflation right now. And she thinks the government could spend a lot more money right now and we'd still probably be fine. Dr. Kelton was super persuasive, and I, I'm not sure I'm convinced, uh, but I am absolutely persuaded that we need to open up our thinking to include at least this different way of conceptualizing the economy and what its limits are and what kind of policies can make sense within that broader picture. You know, I, I've tried to look at the math of this when I see the critiques of it, and it's just beyond me. But I'm not sure that it really matters, that it's actually possible that the orthodox monetary theory and modern monetary theory, maybe they're both right in a sense, in the same way that, you know, light, is it a particle or a wave? It's both. It depends yeah. on how you measure it, how you look at it. And what's important to me, again, is... Not whether it's exactly right, but the way it changes how we think about the economy, how we think about money and debts and deficits. And, uh, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. If you think that the main constraint on government is the size of the deficit, well, that's going to constrain your policies. But if, as Professor Kelton argues, the main constraint is really inflation, not deficits, then you're yeah. a little more open to uh, things that expand the fiscal space instead of just worrying about how high that deficit goes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as I've said before, I'm not sure she's right, but I definitely know the old way of thinking is wrong. And so that creates space for 
uh, policy and intellectual innovation in that sense. I do have one concern, which is that if you grant that uh, MMT is correct and that the that the rate limiting factor is inflation, you can't have your cake and eat it too, and both expand beyond neoclassical economic thinking with MMT and rely on the surety of neoclassical economics in terms of the likelihood that inflation gets away from you. In, in other words, one of the foundations is that people are rational, deductive, probabilistic, maximizing, and the, the economy is in stable equilibrium. Well, if that's true, then inflation is a thing that isn't going to be an increasing returns phenomena that can get away from you and tear the economy apart. Uh, but if, as we've asserted, and I think it's absolutely true, people are emotional, approximating, and non-deductive, that we're not rational, we're super emotional, that if you get an inflationary cycle started with MMT by appropriately investing more, it may be far harder to get inflation back under control than the MMTers would have you believe. And well, I think that that is one of the potential vulnerabilities of that thinking. Well, I think what scares um, critics of it, and, and one of the main critiques, they accuse the MMTers of uh, constantly moving the goalpost, uh, because if you think about it, I think I think MMT comes at it much more from our perspective of the non-equilibrium system, that it's not clear-cut when inflation is a threat. Uh, under orthodox economics, there are certain rules and ratios that suggest yes. when you get beyond yep. this in the economy, inflation will rear its ugly head, and we keep hearing that, and it never does. Uh, or hasn't recently. Or hasn't recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And I think what Professor Kelton points out is that you know the economy has its own internal speed limit. We need to be looking at the internal speed limit of the economy, not budget deficits and debt. The question is determining what that speed limit is. And that's a lot cloudier in MMT than in the old yeah. orthodox models. And, and we run into that uh, ourselves all the time when we're talking about our economic theory as opposed to the uh, orthodox models, that it's a lot harder to model. It is a lot harder to model. That's uh, right. A non-equilibrium system. You don't system. have representative agents in equilibrium. Models get very, very hard to build. Yeah. Again, it, I would argue that just because you can't currently model it doesn't mean it's worse than models that can be done but are just completely wrong yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and, and but, misleading. But, but I think but, we have yeah. a fellow traveler here, at least in the sense of being willing to challenge orthodoxy. Absolutely. You know, where at one point she said that almost everything we've been taught about money and debt and deficits is probably wrong. And that, that sounds a yeah, lot does. like yeah. one of our earlier yeah. episodes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. where we said almost everything you're taught in Econ 101 is wrong. Yeah. And, you know, the community of people who care about modern monetary policy are definitely, you know, they're on to something for sure. We've just heard clips today, starting with Chris Hayes on why is this happening, explaining that Republicans only pretend to care about deficits. Pitchfork Economics spoke with economist Stephanie Kelton, the MMT advocate we heard throughout the show, who described a new 
bathtub-based metaphor for government spending to replace the old wrong fiscal house concept. The Ezra Klein Show talked about why inflation is the indicator that's important to focus on. Continuing on why is this happening, it was explained why MMT should not be thought of as a free lunch or baseless magical thinking. The Ezra Klein Show continued a debate between Stephanie Kelton and a more mainstream economist who advised President Obama about inflation as the primary indicator. The Majority Report spoke with Professor Richard Wolff about the benefits of MMT for socialist spending priorities, but warned about the danger of putting politicians in charge of regulating inflation during their budgeting process. Why is this happening? Continued speaking with Stephanie Kelton about just how much fiscal space we think there may be in the economy and the way Congress should get useful advice about budgeting with inflation in mind rather than worrying about the deficit. Planet Money highlighted a critic of MMT from the left who also pointed to the political rather than the economic problems of managing inflation through the budget, coupled with Stephanie Kelton's response, urging us to create economic policies that are self-correcting rather than depending on Congress to act in a way that's good for reducing inflation, but bad for their re-election chances. And finally, we just heard Pitchfork Economics giving their concluding thoughts on the case for MMT. Members this week will be hearing a bit more about the transformational nature of how MMT changes the story we tell ourselves about government spending, as well as hearing former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan's truth bomb, in which he, as someone as entrenched in the status quo mindset as anyone, explains to Paul Ryan's face that there is no danger of the federal government running out of money to pay Social Security and Medicare benefits because, essentially, the principles of modern monetary theory. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And secondly, I just wanted to give another little summary of today's episode topic, because multiple reasons. I think economics is just something that is not most people's wheelhouse. It is not the, the sort of information that sticks easily because people are often not super familiar with it. And so getting new information on a topic you're not familiar with is harder. But then even if you do know about it, MMT is such a mind bender. It's a totally new paradigm of a way to think about these things that it can be really hard to latch onto. So here are the sort of the core points that I pulled out when doing all of my research. Number one, MMT is not a brand new thing. It is not a thing that we need to implement. It is already how the system works. So adopting MMT, if you were to adopt it officially, it's really just about aligning our understanding of how things work with the reality of how they already work. That's why it's not crazy or dangerous or anything like that, because It's already the system. We just don't talk about things in the right way. We don't use the right metaphors. We don't tell the right stories. We don't use the right shorthands. And we don't follow the right indicators. We're just doing it kind of like good enough. We sort of like have a basic sense, and but we're missing a lot of major points. And so MMT is is just a new and almost certainly better way of describing what we're doing, but you don't have to change anything to to come to this new understanding. Secondly, the problem with managing 
MMT inflation, inflation being the thing people want to pay attention to the most, is not economic. It's political. And if there is a major argument against adopting this way of thinking, it is that economists are not good enough at understanding how human beings actually work, and in this case, human politicians and the pressures that they are under and and the irrational de- you know these according to the economist what would be an irrational decision to uh, make a vote or or uh, you know pro- propose a policy that's good for their own reelection but bad for the country or bad for inflation and so on and and so paying attention to the politics of how this stuff gets implemented is super super important and the answer is to start paying attention to the inflation indicator instead of debt and deficit and make sure politicians know that that's what you care about and you know not the old way of thinking and then as we heard in the show the mo- probably the most effective way is to neutralize the effect of politicians and the way they react to things in their own self-interest rather than in the general uh, interest of the country and that is to create more and more policies that are good at mitigating inflation but kick in automatically. Uh, the, the way it was described is to take the fingerprints of Congress off of these sorts of policies because they're, they're, they're the sort of things that everyone knows they should do and they would want for them to happen, but they just they know that it'll look bad to them personally, to their constituents, if they are seen to be the ones you know, cutting back on spending. And so if we can just have these policies be things that just happen, oh, this policy just kicked in automatically because it's designed to kick in automatically. What are you going to do? No one has to cast a vote that can be used against them in an election campaign. Those sorts of policies, I think, are are the best buffer against the political influence that would corrupt a, a MMT way of thinking, budgeting mindset, and policy implementation. That is the buffer. Now, whether or not we can get all those pieces in place to make the system work well is yet again a political question, but at least having an understanding of MMT gives us a North Star to head towards because it's a whole lot easier to fix a system if you really and truly understand how it works rather than tinkering around with something that you think you have a basic gist of, but are actually getting quite wrong in a lot of fundamental ways. As always, if you have thoughts on this or anything else, we'd love to hear them. Keep the calls coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.